by way of announcement, uh, we all know this, I'm sure, by now, but the fast of the seventh month comes on the third day of the seventh month. This is the first day of the seventh month, being Feast of Trumpets, uh, so that makes the third day Sunday. So we have trumpets today, Sabbath tomorrow, and then a fast coming up Sunday. So we get three days of opportunity to spend more time with God than normally. This particular fast listed in Zechariah 8, not just of the Jews, but God said these fasts would be turned into feasts of joy at some point. Uh, this particular one has to do with Gedaliah, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylon. Some were left behind to mine the fields and to produce crops and animals so that the land could be productive and still be taxed by Babylon. And Gedaliah was appointed governor by Nebuchadnezzar. He was a Jew and apparently was a very fair, honest, decent, upstanding person. But there was another named Ammon who was uh, jealous of him and plotted to have him killed. <clears throat> Gedaliah just passed it off and said, "No, you know, nobody would be that way. But he was, and he did kill him. So a fast was established because Gedaliah was the last more or less righteous ruler that had been put over the Jews, even by Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah was still around, but after Gedaliah was killed, <clears throat> the remaining Jews were afraid that Nebuchadnezzar would send uh, the soldiers again because they killed the governor that he had appointed. So many of the Jews then fled to Egypt, and they required Jeremiah to go with them. Jeremiah was the prophet at the time. But Gedaliah was the governor. So it was the last, if you will, grasp that the Jews had in any kind of righteous leadership. And that was destroyed at the hand of an assassin. So it was a sad day for those Jews who had been left behind. And, you know, today we've had the Church of God come apart. Our counselor is dead. Our king has perished, Micah 4. And now we're getting down to the point that there just really isn't much righteous leadership left. So I think there is certainly a parallel between what happened in those days and what is occurring in the church today. And certainly it makes it alive for us to recognize that there is a dearth of good leadership in the church. And that we need to pray that God is going to resolve that problem. Until we, again, as a body, I mean the whole church of God, have people we can look to and respect and listen to and know that we're going to hear the truth, we're indeed in trouble. And the whole church today is in deep trouble. And God is not done scattering it yet. He will knock down three big trees shortly. <clears throat> three ministries will go down, according to Zechariah 11. And there'll be even less uh, leadership than there is today. Now, God doesn't like the leadership that is being presented by those three big trees at the moment anyway. So they have to go. But more destruction is in the wind and will occur to the church. 
So I thought I would just give a, a brief <clears throat> outline of why this is an important day coming up, or why it was set aside as a fast day, and then partially why God will turn it into a feast of joy, because he is going to restore good leadership to the church, and it will be a wonderful day of feasting and not fasting when that occurs. So these fasts will not last forever. They're going to be changed into something different than what they are. We live in a world today <clears throat> that I think I can show in a moment is motivated by a great deal of fear and paranoia. We heard about some of that this morning again from Gordon. Uh, this is from a little bit different standpoint. But we fear in our society most everything. And our fear is subjected to people with great greed who make a great deal of money off of our fear. They're called insurance companies. And because of our fears and our paranoia, they build 50 and 60 story skyscrapers and have the money to do so because we are A, afraid, and B, we are a society which will not accept the idea of loss. Loss is unacceptable to us. Therefore, we pay for home insurance because the loss of our home is simply unacceptable to us. This is a fairly new phenomenon in the societies of the world where you could insure yourself against a loss of almost any kind. We have mortgage insurance. In case we lose our job, our mortgage then will be paid. We have car insurance to insure, we think, against accidents or loss in case of accidents. But they'll pay us for our car. But they'll pay for the other guy's car. Uh, and those car insurance premiums or policies include loss of an eye. They'll pay you so much. Loss of two eyes a lot more, loss of an arm, loss of two arms, you get way more for. If you lose both arms and both legs, this sounds ghastly to talk about, but it's right there in the policies. If you lose all four of your limbs, then you get paid Boku money. So it goes up with how many pieces of your body get cut off or maimed and destroyed in that car accident, and you'll receive compensation for it because loss is unacceptable to us. We have to be paid. We want paid. We want to ensure that nothing happened, but if it does, brother, I want paid. I want to be sure I don't have any loss of any kind. We have life insurance. Now, they're not going to ensure that you won't die, but somebody's going to get paid if I die. <laughs> my wife, my kids, whoever I make the beneficiary, somebody's going to get paid. Now, the living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything. Ecclesiastes 9.5. So we know we're going to die, but it is simply unacceptable to us 
that we would die without some compensation being made, isn't it? So we trot down and pay our premiums for our life insurance. We have medical insurance in America today, and they, the government wants to be sure everybody is covered for their medical. Because big pharmacy and big medical make big money on hacking and sawing and giving pills to people. So they want to be sure we have insurance to be able to pay that. They don't want us without medical insurance. It's not because of us, really, that they're concerned about that. It's that they want paid if something happens to us. And if something happened to us, we want paid. So we're willing to pay big premiums for our health insurance in this country today to be sure there's compensation. We have actresses like Marlene Dietrich years ago, who I, I understand insured her legs because her legs were her main claim to fame. So she went down and paid a premium so that if she lost her legs, she would be set for life to be compensated for it. There are singers. I think Barbara Streisand had her vocal cords and her lungs insured so that something happened to her throat, she would be compensated millions and millions of dollars and not ever have to work again because she made her living with her lungs, her throat. You can go to Lloyd's of London, and if you want to pay enough, you can get insured against almost anything. Athletes get their arms insured, pitchers. It just goes on and on. We're afraid. We want to be sure we're taken care of. Now, none of this gives us life or car or house assurance, does it? just insurance. We can't insure or assure that nothing will happen, but we can ensure that you'll be paid if it does. We even have credit card insurance so that you pay a buck and a half or three dollars a month or whatever it is every month so that if you lose your job or get sick, your credit card will be paid for a certain amount of time. So there's basically just no limits and what you can be insured for, isn't it? What about tribulation insurance? Can you go down and buy insurance against the tribulation? What if you wind up in it? Who's going to pay? There ought to be somebody. Maybe one of you. Could somebody volunteer to check out Lloyd's of London's for me? and see if they'll give you insurance against the beast and the Great Tribulation. Well, this is a piece of trumpets, and that may be an intermediary, intermediary goal, is escaping the Great Tribulation. <clears throat> but the biggie that I want to talk about today is what about resurrection insurance? How much would you have to pay for a resurrection premium? Because we know we're going to die, don't we? I mean, it's inevitable. Even young people realize that sometime way off out there, they're going to die. Some of you old people are real cozy with the idea. 
What do you mean, some of you? I always look at old people as being older than me, but something's happening. I'm not sure what. Can you buy resurrection insurance? The trumpet's going to sound, and people are going to be raised, incorruptible. They're going to live eternally. I was thinking about this early this morning. My stomach was already upset, and I wasn't feeling too well. And those are the times when you get a little bit funky anyhow. And I'm thinking, this day coming up now is going to be the Feast of Trumpets. And it's supposed to be a joyful, wonderful day. And I don't feel very good. So I began to think, well, you know, there is going to be a resurrection. I don't doubt that in the least. God will do it. I have absolute faith and trust that it's in His Word. And he created the universe. He created the stars and the heavens and the sun and the moon. And I went out and looked at the stars at 3 a.m. this morning, and they shined very brightly, and it was beautiful outside. And I was grumpy anyway. So I don't doubt there's going to be a resurrection. The only part I have a problem with is, am I going to be in it? That's the only thing I have a problem with about the resurrection. I have full faith and confidence God is going to do it, can do it, and will do it. But will I be in it? And that got me to thinking about insurance. How can I pay a premium or get a policy that ensures that I will be resurrected? I know I'm going to die anyway. Boy, it should be sure be nice to be able to have it all set up ahead of time to know I'm going to make it, I'm going to be there. Can that be done? Where would you buy it? You know, we have a society that is fearful and paranoid and certainly wants to be compensated. And there are insurance companies everywhere. I think that this really comes from Satan. He would like us to think that everything is going to be okay, nothing will ever go wrong, but if it does, it'll all turn out okay, because if you don't have any legs and arms, at least you'll be a rich doughboy. Can't move, but you can hire somebody to poke food in your mouth. You know, the whole Protestant religion is based on this. Same thing. People fear that they will die and not be resurrected or go to hell. That's the big fear that's placed on people. So, what is Protestantism? Basically, it's a can't-fail religion. Once saved, always saved. Except Jesus, and you're going to be okay. Can't fail. They try to give you assurances, or in that sense, insurance. Jesus holds the policy. And if you come and you accept him, your premium is paid, you can't fail. Grace only. No law keeping, just grace. And certainly grace is very important, but grace has to be understood to be God's true grace and not once you get sprinkled or dunked or whatever and accept Jesus that you'll be there. 
So what they're trying to do is quell and calm your fears and your paranoia about going to hell by saying, if you accept Jesus, you're going to heaven, it's guaranteed, no problem. The devil's going to have to pay, but you're going to heaven. Isn't it about the same thing? Not much difference there. It's another reason I think it kind of comes from Satan. Let's go to Psalm 46. <clears throat> Let's explore some thoughts here. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Metropolitan life is not our refuge and our strength. And they're not very present anyway. Because every one of those big insurance companies, when something does happen, is going to find a way to squirrel around it and not pay you anyway. Now you think that you're safe. And since you paid your premium, everything's going to be taken care of. But probably all of us know somebody that's been through a horror story with a, an insurance company who's tried not to pay or tried to pay less than they had promised to pay or tried to prove you were culpable and it was your fault and therefore they won't pay or you didn't find, read the fine print and thought your wife would be okay if you shot yourself and she'd get all the money and then it found out it had a clause in there against suicide. So you're dead and she doesn't get paid anyway. They have all kinds of ways to wiggle out of it. God doesn't want to wiggle out of it. He's made us some promises, and he says he's our refuge and strength, and he's very present to help in time of trouble. He wants to. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There's a time coming. Well, this is going to be happening all around us. The governments will be shaken. The literal mountains will be shaken. And the earth is going to be removed. And Have you ever been in an earthquake when you could see the waves? Where land was like water waves. I've seen it coming. And it ripples and rolls the land. a scary thing. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. He's talking here about the time of all the troubles that are going to be coming on this world. Things that we've talked about many times that are going to take the world by storm. But there is a place where God is going to have his city, his people, and it'll be protected. God will be in the midst and she shall not be moved. Even if the earth is shaking like a blanket, she will not be moved. That sounds like a pretty good assurance or insurance policy already, doesn't it? But there's always that nagging question, will I be there? See, that one always comes back to haunt us. What about you personally? I don't doubt this will happen. Will I be there? That's the question. He says that he will help right early. 
when all this terrible trouble starts truly coming down, God is going to intervene early. He's going to help us if we have paid our premiums. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The earth is just going to be like wax before God when he starts shaking it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the eternal. What desolations he has made in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. So when the times of trouble really hit, God says that he is going to protect a certain group of people. He's going to take care of them. And even before them, he's going to make them a fine new threshing instrument. Isaiah 42, I think it is, and Micah 4. And they'll thresh the nations and the governments of the world. God is going to use his people to help shape the world. It's incredible. I'd like to be one of them. Notice, now this whole thing in here is beautiful. Let's go to Psalm 50. The mighty God, even the eternal, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. He's made his, is going to make his word known, east to west. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He says he's going to come and dwell with us there in Zechariah 2 at this end time, but it'll be tempestuous because where he is, there's great energy, there's great power. Things happen. You don't just sort of sit and suck your thumb all day long because where God is, things happen. They happened at Mount Sinai and the people got scared and said, hey, shut him down, I want to listen to Moses, but forget this. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. There is a little inkling there of what some of the insurance premium might be. There are certain things you have to do to have assurance that you will be there. They sacrifice. What does Romans 12:1 tell us? It says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to serve, to help, to give, not to be selfish, but to have others in mind, to do what we can for others. Don't we like when we have a desire to be served and helped and uh, waited on? People pay money when they go to a restaurant to be waited on. Not to wait, but to be served, waited on. They'll pay 15, 20% of the bill if they get good service. To someone who will pamper them, who will bring them everything they need. Can I have some water? Can I have some more water? Can I have this? Can I have that? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll bring it to you. The people who are waiting tables or serving in a restaurant, 
That's what their whole life is geared to, is serving other people for the sake of getting something in return, that is money. God tells us that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when it's sacrificed, there's nothing immediately that comes in return, is there? A sacrifice, a donation, uh, a gift. Those are things that you don't expect anything back on. There's no strings involved. When somebody waits on you in a restaurant, there's always a string there. That is, tip me. But we are to give with no strings attached. We're not to want something in return. We're to donate to others and not expect anything back. We're to serve them even if they don't say thank you. Our bodies are to be a living sacrifice. That's one of the first things that God is going to look for when he starts determining whether you are going to be resurrected in the first resurrection of the first fruit or not. Were you willing to give of yourself? In other words, it's the commandments boiled down. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Isn't it rather selfish when a person is sitting and maybe wants a glass of milk, let's say, and says, honey, get me a glass of milk, whoever honey is, male or female. And it would be nice if they're already up and you're sitting there, if they would be, and say, sure, I'll get you a glass of milk while I'm up. And that feels good to have somebody have that attitude toward you and want to serve you, isn't it? It's not quite as nice when they say, get up and get it yourself, which a lot of people do. But a lot of times in a home, it's one-sided. You get it for me, and you get your own. It's not doesn't work both ways always, because sometimes there's a man there who thinks he's macho, everything, and everybody ought to serve it, or... Maybe it isn't always the macho guy. Maybe it's the princess of the house or the queen who thinks she ought to be taken care of. That didn't work too well. I don't make a good girl, but you know what I mean. But isn't it all about serving and helping one another? Isn't that what God really called us to do is help other human beings? So if you want some insurance that you'll be in the first resurrection, there's the first month's premium. Sacrifice. Present your body as a living sacrifice. I could probably go through the Bible, and this sermon could go on for hours and hours and hours and maybe days, and things you could do that would equate to, in this world, an insurance premium. That this would help ensure that there was some compensation on the other end. Are we going to go through this life, doing this, doing this, doing that, going through trial, tribulation, suffering, and difficulty, and then not have compensation? That wouldn't be right or fair, would it? And God has not told us that it would be that way. He said, if you'll do certain things, if you'll pay these premiums, you will be compensated. It's an absolute Direct promise from God. So we can ensure ourselves of being in the resurrection. 
we can make sure that that compensation is there and that it will happen. Let's see, he says, He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, verse 4, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints, those that have made a covenant by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness. Did the Protestant teachers the new covenant has anything to do with sacrifice? No. It's just accept the Lord. That's all there is to it. He says the covenant is by sacrifice. And he's talking here about eternal life. So the new covenant has sacrifice in it. This is talking about the resurrection. When he says, gather my saints together to me. And heaven shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, even your God. If you've forgotten that or getting dull of hearing, he says, I'm God. I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings that have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of your house, nor he goats out of your foes. He's never been happy with the blood of bulls and goats. He wants us in a covenant of sacrifice. Same thing Hebrews says. It's just back here in the Psalms, that's all. Every beast of the forest is already mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. He counts even the sparrows that fall to the ground. And the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Why do we need to know if he's hungry? He can eat any time he wants to, and sometimes does. I will eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats, or will I? Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. We pay our premiums to the insurance company on our car or our house. Do we pay our vows to the Most High? How high are your premiums? You know, people can buy insurance on so many things, pretty soon they don't have any money left. You, you can pay a lot of money out of insurance of various kinds. The only kind I carry anymore, period, is car insurance, physically, because... You have to, and I think it is love toward your neighbor if you're going to drive those snorting, uh, growling tons of metal. You could hurt somebody. And so it's only fair to provide, in case you screw up, they be compensated. But pay your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So calling upon him is another way we start paying our insurance premium. But to the wicked, God says, what have you to do to declare my statutes or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? Ah, wickedness can remove any assurance. Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief... Then you contended with him, and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things have you done, and I kept quiet, God says. You thought that I was altogether such an one as yourself. We thought he was a liar and a thief and a slanderer. Just like us, but he's not. 
but I will reprove you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offers praise glorifies me, and to him that orders his conduct aright will I show the salvation of God. So it says, follow my precepts, follow my wishes, praise me, glorify me, and I will give you salvation. Well, see, he's showing here that you can pay your way out of salvation, or in that sense, you can pay the premiums which will lead to an assurance of salvation. Now, am I saying you can buy your way into the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. You can't get into the kingdom of God by works. Let's don't even go there. I'll show you my faith by my works. And grace of God and unmerited pardon is certainly important. And you can't earn salvation. I'm talking about something different here. I'm talking about us being able to have the confidence to know that we're going to be there, and I'm simply using an analogy of paying an insurance premium like we do in the world to ensure that there is compensation. So I'm not, this is not an argument about law and grace. This is simply an analogy. And you cannot earn salvation. But you can have assurance that you will be there, that you will be in the resurrection. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30 for a moment. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Deuteronomy itself says that this book is about the things that will happen to his people in the latter days. I won't go back and read that. We have recently in Bible study. But God is summarizing here his comments about blessings and cursings. The blessings that will come from doing the things he says... And God is a God who will not make false promises. He says, if you do this, this will happen. That is an absolute assurance. It is insurance. If you do these things, this is going to be the result. Either you're going to be cursed and die forever, or you're going to live forever, depending on what you do. Ezekiel makes that very clear. Ezekiel 33, 34, through that section. It says, verse 3, well, let's see, verse 2, And you shall return to the eternal your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that what's repeated by Jeremiah, by Isaiah, by Paul, by Peter? Throughout the entire Bible, this is quoted in one form or another that then the eternal your God will turn your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the eternal your God has scattered you. The church has been scattered throughout all the nations now. And God says we'll turn to him with our whole heart, and it says in an end-time prophecy for sure in Jeremiah that then he will turn his face to us. It's an assurance. If, even if you've been driven into the outermost parts of heaven, from there will eternal your God gather you. He's using some metaphor there. Uh, we're not going to be chased to the outermost parts of heaven. Uh, it takes too many millions of light years to get out there. 
Uh, there might be a few pieces of human beings floating around in orbit around the earth, but that's not the outermost portions of heaven. But he'll find you wherever you go. Verse 6, And the eternal your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's why we are having the trouble in the church today that we're having. It's so that we might be circumcised of heart and turn to him with all our heart and then he will bless us. He is awaiting our response is what he's doing. Verse 15, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. And he tells us uh, in verse 19 the same thing. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your seed may live both physically on the earth and ultimately by the new covenant, eternally. So there's a choice involved. And if we make the right choices in life, we can then be assured that we will live. God doesn't lie to us. He doesn't play games with us. He says, if you will obey the things I've told you in this book, you will live forever. Absolute assurance of that. There's your insurance premium. Live by every word of God, this book, and there is no chance, no question, no doubt you will be in the resurrection if you live by every word of God. It's absolutely assured. Now, where does that leave me? I keep saying that, don't I? Because I am not living by every word of God yet. I still fail. I still have wrong thoughts and wrong actions and say wrong things. And I hope my heart is turning the right direction and is turning to God. But it's difficult, isn't it? But you know, like with an insurance policy, you have to keep paying the premiums every month, don't you? Some of them are annual, but they, they cover every month or whatever your, however your thing is set up. Well, we just have to keep on doing the things that ensure that it will happen. <clears throat> if we do that, we can begin to have confidence. You know, Paul, by the time he reached almost the end of his life, said, finally, I rest assured, I fought a good fight, I know I'm going to be there. I know he had an absolute life assurance policy in place. I'm not there yet, and I doubt if you're there yet, where you have absolute confidence that it is going to happen. I have absolute confidence going to happen for some, but not for me. Because I have not done all the things that I need to do. God told Joshua then in chapter 31 of Moses, God through Moses and so on, or told Moses Joshua would go over before him. <clears throat> and he told Joshua then that the Lord would go uh, give them up before your face, in verse 5 of 31, that you may do unto them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. And he told Joshua then, because he was charging him with a job to do here, be strong be of a good courage, 
Fear not, nor be afraid. For the Eternal, your God, He it is that does go with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you. He is giving absolute assurance here. If you will go and do the job I've given you to do, do it the way I want it done, everything is going to work out just fine. So what did Joshua have to do? He had to pay his premiums by being strong, by having courage, by not fearing, and being afraid of those around him. There are people who fear the beast. There are people who fear the great tribulation. And I suppose a certain healthy respect for the fact that that is coming is necessary. But I'm, you can't be saved from the tribulation by being afraid it's going to happen. You, do you realize there are a lot of people in the Protestant world out here who know it's coming? They've read about the Great Tribulation. There are a lot of people writing articles on the Internet today who know it's getting very close. And the economy of this country is about to be demolished. They have a false hope, either gold or silver, or that God will rapture them out of it, or whatever their particular brand of insurance might be. But knowing it's coming doesn't save you out of it. So, should we be paralyzed in fear and saying, oh, I hope I hope I hope I hope I hope I or should we quietly be doing those things that would assure that we don't have to fear it? Sometimes when we talk about all these horrible things that are coming that will happen to people's children and to, our, to them, we get all afraid. No, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. You've got to pay your premiums in the right spot. So God says, be strong and a good courage and don't fear well, what is going to lead you to have that attitude? You're going to have to be getting close to God. He has no fear of the tribulation. He has no fear of death. He has no fear of anything. He controls everything. So why not be close to Him? Instead of fearing these guys, love this one. Obey Him. Serve Him. He can guarantee that you escape these things that are coming. He can guarantee you will be resurrected in the right resurrection. So when God says be strong and have courage and don't fear, he means it. He meant for Joshua to go into that land that he had promised and not be afraid of those people who had big spears and big knives and big bows and arrows and big horses and who knows what else. Don't be afraid of them. Be of good carriage and don't fear. And do the job. Scouts came back, ooh, they're big guys. Can't go in there except for Caleb and Joshua. Well, God used somebody that said, we can take them. He wants a positive attitude out of us. 
you know, this morning when I was reasoning about me and whether I can be there or not, or I know there's a resurrection, but will I be there? Yeah, you need a certain amount of self-analysis and introspection, sure. But God doesn't want us to be wallflowers or shy. He doesn't want us to shrink back. He wants us to move forward in boldness before the throne of God. We're supposed to be bold about this thing. Now, how do you get bold? Proverbs. The righteous are bold as a lion. You know what makes us insecure spiritually? Our sins, our faults, our problems, our weaknesses. That's what makes us weasley. If we overcome and grow, we will become bold. We don't come arrogantly before the throne of God, but we come boldly, knowing that he has made promises and our track record is getting better, and therefore, as we grow and overcome, we get bolder. We have more courage. We don't go before his throne sniveling and whining all the time. Because we are growing. Now Paul, at one time, considered that the things he didn't want to do, he did. The things he did want to do, he didn't do. And he said he had to be careful, lest after preaching to others, he himself become a castaway, cast out of the kingdom of God. He didn't believe in once saved, always saved. He knew that even he as an apostle could be cast away. And he had probably some moments of concern. I know he did the time he was even writing that to those people in Corinth. He had concerns about his own spiritual status and whether his premiums were paid up, if you will. Because he knew that he still had problems and attitudes and things that weren't right. But what did he do? Did he give up and say, well, I guess I'm not going to make it. I can't make it. Take me as I am, Lord, or don't take me at all. That's a fatalistic approach. I guess you'll just have to take me as I am. Where do you ever see that in the Bible, take me as I am? That came straight out of Protestantism. He don't want you like you are. He wants us changed. Paul recognized that. So what did he do? He kept working on himself, changing day by day. And finally, by almost the end of his life, he said, you know, I have overcome. And God said, if I did overcome, I would be in his kingdom, and I have. Let's face the facts, folks. I have overcome, and I will be in the kingdom of God. Now, we need to all come to that attitude at some point in our Christian development. We need to get there. I'm telling you. We don't need to be sniveling, weaselly cowards the rest of our lives. We don't want vanity. We don't want self-righteousness. We don't want arrogance by saying, well, I deserve to be there. Because that very attitude shows you don't. Because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So never can self-righteousness come in there, but a recognition of growth and overcoming should give us courage and hope 
for the future so that we can be resurrected. And we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and come to the place we can come boldly to Him. And not look back over our shoulder worrying. We all have to grow to that point. Let's go to Hebrews 12. There's, a, there's one that's just it popped into my mind. I wrote it down. Uh, there are so many throughout the Bible, but I just hit a few. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Here he's talking about chasing us and paddling our behind spiritually when we don't do what we should and don't have the right attitude. But he, he does it for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness, verse 10. He wants us to straighten up and produce or yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness, verse 11. So he said, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Quit being a weasel. Quit saying, well, I'm just weak. I'll just never overcome this. All right. Let's just get real. Let's get real about what our problems are. Let's admit them instead of denying them and running from them and then go to work changing them. Otherwise, God is going to chasten us. You, you can't get out of it. He chastens every son whom he loves. He says if he doesn't chasten you, then you're a bastard and not a son. Well, who wants to be a little bastard? None of us. So, if we do things that are wrong, or we don't do things that are right, we're asking for a paddling. Because God says, if I love you, I'm going to give you one. So if you get away with a lot of things and you never get chastened, then you're in trouble. But if he loves you, things aren't going to go right. You may lose a job, you may get sick, you may have an accident. All kinds of things can happen where God's trying to get your attention. I had a little four-wheeler accident here two or three months ago. I hurt my shoulder and my wrists and my face and my attitude and everything else. Did I just let that go by and say, well, well, just time and chance? No. I gave some serious consideration to my attitudes, my thoughts, my mind, my, my life. Maybe God could have helped prevent that little accident. On the other hand, maybe he said, yeah, let him go ahead and roll over, he needs it. You know, maybe I did. Don't discount it. When adverse things happen, think, well, let's see, God says he chastens those whom he loves. He must love me. I'm having trouble. Maybe there's something wrong that I need to think about and be honest about and get real about and get fixed. That's what he wants us to do, what he says to do. God doesn't want us to suffer our whole lives. He just doesn't want us to do that. Didn't Paul write, and God put it in the Bible, I wish above all things that you, uh, what was it, live peaceably and be in health? Something like that, or prosper and be in health. 
That's God's attitude. We are the ones that limit ourselves. We're the ones that make our insurance policy look really weak or creaky because of the way we do things. So he said, lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be fixed or healed, straightened out. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the eternal. He says, if you don't learn to live at peace, with all men, and become holy, you won't be in the kingdom of God. Now, that is kind of a left-handed promise, because it also implies that if you are peaceable with men, and you do become holy, you will see God. It's saying both. <laughs> Looking very carefully, diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. You mean you can fall out of the grace of God? What Protestant ever read that verse? Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. You know, when somebody starts getting bitter, they talk, don't they? When they start getting bitter, they begin to talk to others. And they're not just defiling themselves, they're defiling others. And you know how God looks upon defiling others? He hates it. Anyone who sows discord and division among the brethren, God absolutely hates. Says it back in Proverbs and other places. Seven things God hates. One of them is causing discord and division because we have a bad attitude and we want to spread it. Now, if you want God to hate your approach to life and personality, all you have to do is become a little bit bitter and troubled and talk to other people about it and get them in a bad attitude too. But I'll guarantee you, in so doing, you will put God in a bad attitude about you. So you better be careful. There's anything I don't want is God to have a bad attitude toward Daryl Henson. I don't want that to be. There's been plenty of times that I'm sure he did have. And I'm trying to repent and change and grow and be different so that he won't have as many bad attitudes about me. Or about you. So we have to look diligently. You don't have to be totally bitter to cause other people to be defiled. Esau was totally bitter. He's an extreme example, but there are a lot of grades and shades this side of that that aren't good, that God does not approve of. We've got to consider that. Psalm 51, 17, I'm not going to turn back and read, but it says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A broken spirit. Not the, I will do what I want to do, or nobody's going to tell me. But somebody who is broken 
to the Word of God and broken to the will and the ways of God. When you break a horse, you shouldn't beat the horse until his whole personality and spirit is broken because then you just have a worthless nag. But you still have to, what they call break, and it's, it's an unfortunate word in a way, train. Guide, lead the horse's attitude and approach to life so that he is willing to go along with. So that he has an attitude of service to you as rider or plowman or whatever you're doing with the horse and putting him into service. But his spirit of rebellion, his spirit of I don't want what you want done, I want to do what I want done, that has to go away. You can do it gently and lovingly, as the horse whisperer, the dog whisperer does, or you can do it harshly. Gentler is better. And you preserve the animal at the same time changing its attitude. But there are times, isn't it back in Jude? Yes, Jude 22. <clears throat> Verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. You might have two different people who have exactly the same problem. One, you show compassion to, making a difference, working with them in a different way, and some, you've got to scare them half to death and jerk them out of the fire. Now there's where wisdom has to come in. Which fool are you working with? Answer a fool according to his folly, or don't answer a fool according to his folly. What will be the best for that person in the long run? Now somebody might say, well, why are you jerking my chain? You showed mercy and compassion on that one. Why are you treating us differently? Well, you're different. Some people need their teeth rattled, and some people need to be a pat on the back and say, I know you'll do that or tomorrow. The goal is to get that person where they need to be. And with different people, you have to use different methods. So we have to be careful in not being judgmental, and we need to pray for wisdom for each other to know how to handle each other. Sometimes the same person might one time need some jerking around, and another time he might need a little mercy and compassion. But the goal is to form righteousness, whichever method you have to use. So Jude shows that there is, that there are different methods that have to be used. Let's see, I'm going to skip over. Let's go to 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. I want to get a little bit to the heart of the matter of this now. <clears throat> Let's go down to verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3. 
According as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. He's speaking of Emmanuel, God with us. He says he's given us opportunity for life and opportunity for everything we could want, to glory and to virtue. That's what he has <clears throat> called you and me to, to have whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. So these aren't, you know, if you do what I say, yeah, I'll consider maybe giving you something good. No, he makes absolute great and precious promises. If you do this, this will happen. Hands down, no questions asked. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, desiring things that are not legal for us. Now, beside this, giving all diligence, here's your insurance premium, kind of spelled out for you right here. Here's what you need to do. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For, and here's a promise, for, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Emmanuel. Now when he says produce fruits and be fruitful, what does he do? Those who produce fruit become first fruits, picked in the first resurrection. So what he's saying here is, if you will do, if you will add these things together into your character and personality, you will be in the first resurrection. This will ensure that you were there. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He's still wallowing in them. He forgot that they had been forgiven, so he goes back to them like the sow or the dog to the wallow or the vomit. Wherefore, the rather, the rather brethren, instead of that, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Sure means assured. It means without question. See what I mean? We have to come, not by transporting ourselves in a fantasy world to the place we can be assured we're going to be in the kingdom of God, but we can be assured and make it sure by doing the things that he listed right here. Absolutely guaranteed you will be there. But your work will not be unnoticed. Read the rest of it. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. That isn't a very long passage, is it? Just a few verses but it gives you absolute assurance that if you will do the things written right here, you will never fall. You will be in the kingdom of God. 
Let's go to Galatians 5. This is said different ways, but it all amounts to the same thing. Galatians 5, <clears throat> verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just treat people like you'd like to be treated. That's how simple the whole thing is. But it's hard for us to grasp that. It's hard for us to do that because we're selfish by nature and would rather be served than served. That's just the way humans are. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Eat each other up. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, there are other passages that talk about walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. Now, how do you know what you're doing? I mean, we're physical human beings, aren't we? And so I walk physically, don't I? Wherever I go, I walk physically. So I know I can walk in the flesh, but how do I walk in the Spirit, and how do I know when I'm walking in the Spirit? Let's explore this. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. We have a war going on inside us. Part of us wants to do what's right, and part of us wants to do what's wrong. Part of us wants to be selfish, and yet we realize we ought to be giving and loving and serving. Part of us lusts for this, that, or the other thing, and part of us realizes that's not a good thing and it will lead to problems, but it'll sure be fun in the meantime. So we war about whether we will do the right things and wind up in the kingdom of God utterly happy or whether we'll enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin for a while because sin can be fun. It really can. But it ends up hurting people, including you. So you got this war. These are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You, you can't do it. If you walk with a fleshly approach, you can't do the things of the Spirit. The, the flesh is winning out. And how does God say he'll know us? By the fruits. We're producing fleshly, physical things, or we're producing spiritual things. That's how you judge. If you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the penalty of the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now here's how you can tell by definition if you're walking by the flesh or by the Spirit. Here are the things that the flesh will lead you to do. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, breaking different laws. Now, is this just spiritually or is this physically? How can you separate physical adultery and spiritual adultery? You can't, really. They're the same. They're both wrong. Christ said, if you even look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, is that spiritual adultery? No, it's not adultery against God first. It's against your mate, that woman or that man, whether you be man or woman. 
It's a physical thing. The eye beholds that individual, and you lust after that. That's physical. So it includes physical adultery and physical fornication, not just spiritual. People like to spiritualize things away so they can do what they want to do. I've heard that argument. Well, this is just spiritual adult. No, come on. Let's get real. Let's be adult here. The works of the flesh. This isn't spiritual sin. This is flesh we're talking about here. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness of any kind. Uh, lawlessness, idolatry, putting anything ahead of God in his word is idolatry. People wonder what Balaam is, or the worship of Balaam. Balaam really equates to Satan. Bottom line, in anything you do which is of your master, the devil, and is not of God, is the sin of Balaam. You think that there is profit. And that was the thing mentioned about Balaam was because of money or profits. We think that it is profitable to despise God's ways and his laws in order to do what we feel like doing. That is idolatry. And it is of Satan, the devil, who is ultimately the spiritual Baal. Idolatry covers a lot of ground. Anything God says that we are not to do, that we do, is idolatry because it's putting whatever it is ahead of God. It's that simple. Witchcraft, hatred, works of the flesh are hatred. If you hate somebody, if you have feelings of hatred, despite towards someone, then you're walking in the flesh. God does not walk in hatred. He just doesn't do it. Variance, which means contention. People with a contentious attitude, negative, against you, attitudes. Emulations, which means envy or malice toward or set against someone. Attitudes that we have that are negative towards someone else, God says, is a work of the flesh. It isn't godly to hold grudges and bad attitudes toward people. It isn't godly. We're supposed to repent of those, forgive them, 490 times in a day, at least. It just means it's open-ended. Always be forgiven. But if we carry it, then that is emulations. Wrath or anger, God tells us not even to be around. Don't be friends with an angry man. Anger and hatred that is espoused by it are contagious. God says don't be around an angry man. Now you're disobeying God and you're committing idolatry if there's somebody who tends to be angry and always against and ooh, 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 got this attitude about them. God tells you explicitly, don't you be around that person. 
If you are, and you listen to them, what does it do? Does it help them overcome it? No, it just enables them to spew their anger on yet another person, their bitterness. Calls it bitterness in Hebrews 12. Here it calls it uh, wrath. Strife, that's a work of the flesh. Don't we all have striving attitudes one time or another? Sedition, that is disunion or division and strongs, creating division. Anytime you create division or separate people one from another, that's a work of the flesh. You're not walking by the Spirit if you're creating rifts between people. Uh, heresies. False doctrines that you think are true. How do you know if it's a heresy since you think it's true? Well, you've got to prove it in the work, the words of God. I've heard a lot of heresies in the last few years. They can't stand all scriptures being put together. You can take one part of one verse and twist it and say, well, God's going to be with me. Two or three of us gather together, God will be with us, no matter what we're doing. Oh, yeah? Better read the context there in Matthew 18. It's talking about making a judgment for the brother where they've done something wrong. And God says where two or three witnesses are gathered together to help correct that situation, he will be with us. It doesn't have anything to do with having two or three of us go off and have our own little church or two or three of us going off to the feast together, or two or three of us uh, committing adultery, you know, Menagerie Troy, that's God's going to be with you there. I think not. How far are you going to take that? Jerk it out of context, twist it, so you figure anything you want to do, if there's two or three of you together, it's okay, God will be with us. Yeah, he might be with you, all right. He might be breathing fire, too. Might not be there the way you want him to be. Don't twist the Word of God out of context. It's not talking about those things. It's talking about God being with us and trying to help a brother in a judgment matter. It's what that is talking about. But I've heard it twisted so many different directions. Well, we don't have to be there with you because God's going to be with us. There's two of us or three. Hogwash. Don't read it in, into something there that is not there. Where was I here? Heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, partyings, and such like. Those are works of the flesh. Pretty long list, isn't it? You know, I, I look at that list and I, boy, that's scary. Been there, done that. <laughs> I've walked after the flesh way too many times, too many ways. That is scary. And if I read that list and I think about me, then I might begin to think, yeah, there's going to be a resurrection. I know there is, but what about me? I want some insurance, but I'm going to be there. Let's keep reading. And such like. I mean, not just the specific things here, but anything in anywhere near that category, he says. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, he repeated things, didn't he? I'll be 
Maybe we should. That they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do the things in this list we just read, you have an insurance policy, a premium paid, that you will not be in the kingdom of God. Clear? But the fruit of the Spirit, if you're going to be walking in the Spirit, you're going to have love, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, moderation. Against such, there is no law. There's no law that says you can't be loving. There's not one that says you shouldn't have faith. There's not a law that says you shouldn't be meek or temperate. There's no law that says you can't be full of joy. There's no law against those things. They're the fruit of the Spirit. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another or envying one another. It's easy to see whether you're walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit. Run back to Galatians 5 and check what you did today, and you'll know by reading these two lists, which you were doing. And we're all somewhere in between there, aren't we? I could go to Revelation 2 and 3, but I won't for the sake of time. But what did he say to every one of the churches? If you will overcome, I'll give you a white stone and the hidden manna. If you will overcome, I'll grant you to sit with me in my throne. If you will overcome, over and over and over again, seven times, he says the exact same thing to the churches. The advice to all is exactly the same. Overcome. And he says there, he makes a promise to every last one of them. If you will overcome, you will be in the kingdom of God. says it in different ways, but that's the bottom line. If you want to pay up your insurance premiums to know that God is going to show grace and favor, can't earn it, but you can certainly pay the price. You can pay the premium up for an insurance policy and an assurance policy that you will be in the kingdom of God. You can look at yourself honestly, find out what is wrong with you, and you can overcome it. And as you overcome it, you will become bolder and bolder. And finally, we will come to the point where we can say, as Paul did, I have fought a good fight, I will be in the kingdom of God. I know it. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll close with. It's been referred to several times today. Verse 52, or 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He wrote this with great confidence, didn't he? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Yes, we all know that we're going to die. But we can be absolutely assured that we'll be in the first resurrection by following Second Peter 1, Galatians 5, Revelation 2 and 3, by overcoming, by growing, by changing, by having showing faith in little things, and it will be faithful in much. God makes it very, very clear. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? To escape death? To escape out of the grave? We're all going there, but there's a way out. There is a way out of the grave. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Break the law, you're going to die, you're not going to be in the resurrection. But if you walk in the Spirit and get rid of the flesh and the lust thereof, you'll be in the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord, Emmanuel the Christ. He is with us. There is nothing that can separate us from him. Romans 8, verse 35. Can't be done. He will not separate from us. It is only we who lose connection and separate from him. But if we will turn to him and walk in the Spirit and crucify the flesh, we are paying our premium. And when your premium is paid, you have confidence, don't you? At least as far as confidence can be in men, that if your house burns, you'll be recompensed. That your car that's been totaled will be replaced. I've had my car replaced before, haven't you? The insurance, more or less, in man's world, does work. Faulty, but it does work. God isn't faulty. It's absolutely sure. It's absolutely secure. We should not be discouraged. But we should learn to overcome and grow and absolutely assure that when the trumpet sounds, I will be ready.